Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? There will be a minor change in the program tonight. Tonight, the part of Robin Williams will be played by The Temptations. Ladies and gentlemen. In 1986, donning his signature Hawaiian button-up, Robin took the stage at the Metropolitan Opera House. The theater was typically home to more highbrow acts like timeless ballets. Howdy! Oh, wrong opera house. Thank you. But tonight's entertainment was of a different breed entirely. For Macmillan Podcasts, this is Knowing, Robin Williams. I'm your host, Christy Westgard. And I'm Dave Itzkoff. I'm a culture reporter at The New York Times, and I'm the author of a biography on Robin Williams called Robin. And over the next two months, we're going to take you through the making of Robin Williams. We'll speak with those who knew him best. He was very, very bright. He had a mind like mercury. I mean, it ran everywhere. I just say that line hard because I love you. I love you for the man that you are. An incredible man, more than just one night. A man who can... I don't know, make you realize, ouch, who are you? I'm ready now. Having him perform stand-up comedy, you know, that was like, that would be like, you know, capturing a wild animal and, and, and having their act be running around the jungle. You know, that's just what he did. You got to be crazy. You know what I'm talking about? Full goose bozo. Because what is reality? Robin always has a certain insecurity about him. So he, so he was always wondering, did that work? Does that work? You know, because you're, you're not getting the laughs. Nobody can just be laughing. We'll also dispel the myth behind Robin's death. That's right. And answer questions like, how did his comedic mind operate? And what was his relationship with fame? You know, I think the charm of Robin was that he made everyone feel like his best friend. When I heard about his death, I was just finishing up a family trip to Yosemite National Park, and there was no signal, no TV. So when we finally got back online and saw the news, it was surreal. I had such a visceral reaction and remember how strange it all seemed at the time. I mean, to me, he was Mrs. Doubtfire, the genie, Good Morning Vietnam. I covered Robin often for the New York Times and even spent time with him for a profile that I wrote about him on what would end up being his last comedy tour. I saw him in public situations and in private moments, and I even wrote what would end up being his obituary. And I think it was so easy for people to label him as a depressed comic immediately after his death. Uh, But, Dave, that wasn't quite the case. Correct. It's been five years since Robin's passing. And a lot of light has been shed on the circumstances that led to this tragic end that offer some clarity at the very least. And in order to understand how we got here, we have to start at the very beginning. In 
It's the mid-60s in Bloomfield, a wealthy suburb of Detroit, Michigan. On a 30-acre plot of land sits an estate grand enough for its own name, Stonycroft. There's a gatehouse, barns, and space for dozens of cars. The centerpiece, a sprawling 40-room manor that sits mostly empty. But up in the attic, a boy lines up his large and growing collection of toy soldiers. He gives each piece a personality and a voice. He doesn't know how famous he'll be for this imagination one day. Right now, all young Robin Williams is focusing on is getting his troops ready for battle. Stonycroft is a, a mansion, really, or was uh, an estate that Robin lived on in his early teenage years, and it kind of typifies the upbringing that he had, that he came from a family of wealth, of means and privilege. His father, Rob, was a former war hero turned auto executive for Ford. He was this plain-spoken Midwesterner and kind of the perfect foil to Robin's mother, Lori. Now, she was a live wire. She was this free-spirited Southern belle who went by punky amongst friends. While Rob was cold, Lori adored Robin and gave him lots of affirmation. Both parents made a deep impression on him, but also, from his perspective, were not always easily accessible, were not always available to him. His dad traveled quite a bit for his work, and his mother, when she wasn't busy with her own social activities, uh, often accompanied the father on some of these trips or was away for other reasons. So Robin spent a lot of time in his youth in these kind of big houses and mansions like Stonycroft, largely to himself, but was lacking uh, the people that he most wanted at times. And so he certainly used that free time and space to kind of train his imagination and to, in a way, create a world for himself and to create companions when real-life flesh-and-blood friends were not accessible to him. Robin connected with his mother through her humor. The moment you hear her, things start to make sense about Robin. She liked to take a rubber band and uh, cut it in the middle and then kind of wad it up into her nose and then pretend to sneeze. And she would have this long string of rubber band just dangling out of her nostril. She also had a wonderful sight gag we can't do here where she cuts a rubber band in half and goes... (laughs) 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 Yeah, that's delightful. Yeah, that's the one that drives my father like, that's it, thank you, I'm leaving. I'm not telling you where I'm going. Oh, my, this was her sense of humor, and she unquestioningly passed that down to Robin. You know, we embarrassed your dad. I did for years. Yeah, that and that. And, and making I, this noise at dinner. He saw, this is what makes my mom laugh, and one way that I can reach her and connect with her is to make her laugh. And so he internalized that and kind of adopted that sensibility. Lori had a collection of silly poems she liked to recite to Robin. One of his favorites went, I love you in blue, I love you in red, but most of all, I love you in blue. And these were simple jokes that kind of showed Lori's humor. But a laugh from Rob was harder to come by, except for on rare occasions when he and Robin sat down to watch Jonathan Winters. He was this big-time comedian who often performed on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. If Jonathan Winters is ever accused of anything, he's got the perfect alibi. He was someone else at the time. 
When I first saw him before the show, he was still trying to decide whether he to be a drunken Eskimo, the queen of the Vikings, or a doorknob. I'd rather he came out simply as himself to begin with, because when he's Johnny Winters, he cannot be imitated. The wild, wild man, my friend Jonathan Winters. That, I think, was massively influential on Robin. On the one hand, getting to see a performer like Jonathan Winters, who was largely improvisatory and ad-libbing, and seeing the way that his father responded to those performances. Thank you. Thank you very much. Did you ever undress in front of a dog? (laughs) Robin began holding a cassette recorder up to the TV to capture these stand-up routines on tape. He'd listen to the sets over and over again until he could perfectly imitate them. And Robin's mind became his place to escape from his parents in a way. To some degree... When Robin was born, he became for them a kind of chance at a do-over, that this was their opportunity to get it right. Rob and Lori both had sons from their previous marriages. And so each of them, I think, really sort of imprinted their principal characteristics onto him. And so from his father, Robin got that kind of sense of, you know, stand up straight with uh, an erect spine and always speak in a kind of even, proper tone. If you listen to Robin's natural speaking voice, that is kind of how he spoke. It's almost a little bit British, a little bit Scottish. It doesn't necessarily sound like uh, a laid-back American. Robin's half-brothers, Todd and McLaurin, didn't come into his life until he was around 10. When Robin was finally introduced to Todd... Todd was Rob's son. Todd was being sent to a different school near to where Robin and his parents lived and then just discovering, oh, I have this older half-brother who is uh, kind of a a badass and the kind of guy who, like, shows up in your bedroom in the middle of the night and wants to rob your piggy bank for uh, beer money. And that definitely made an impression on Robin. Robin looked up to Todd as the cool older brother, but he also shared a kinship with his half-brother on his mother's side. McLaurin was uh, a little bit bookish, uh, very uh, sensible, very thoughtful, very well-read. And in a way, that was also reflective of Robin. That was definitely a streak that he possessed as well, and he definitely responded to and bonded with each of the half-brothers that he had. With Todd off at college and McLaurin living with his grandparents, though, Robin only got to see the two for family vacations, school breaks, and holidays, so he still felt very much on his own. And Dave, I get the sense that Robin was never able to completely shake off that feeling of otherness. Robin, I think one of the telling mysteries about Robin is the fact that even into his adulthood and interviews that he would give about himself, he would sometimes describe himself as an only child, even though certainly within his family and in possibly the wider world, it was known that he had half-brothers that he had lived with at different times in his life. But I think it also reflects how he thought about himself and what his childhood felt like to him, that even though He did have half-brothers. He did have parents. He did have friends in all the schools that he attended. But to himself, 
he felt alone a lot of the time. And that becomes, I think, a very uh, potent and persistent feeling for him throughout his life. So far, Robin has attended six schools in just eight years because of his father's job. In this most recent relocation, he went to the Detroit Country Day School, where he thrived on the rigor. He even began carrying a briefcase to school. He had good grades and was a member of the soccer and the wrestling team. He also joined student council and was voted class president for the upcoming senior year. But just as Robin found his footing, his father's career uprooted him once more. And in the summer of 1969, the Williams family packed up their life yet again and set off for a cross-country road trip. Certainly the biggest culture shock that Robin experienced, at least in that uh, era of his life, was moving from Michigan, moving from Bloomfield Hills, where it was uh, very buttoned down and small C conservative and traditional then moving out to Marin, which is just north of San Francisco, in 1969 at the tail end of the Summer of Love and suddenly ending up in this community where everything feels uh, very open and a little bit bohemian and really quite unlike anything he'd experienced to that point. It seems like Robin took to the West Coast lifestyle pretty easily. So come fall, he begins his freshman year at Claremont Men's College. And from what I know, Claremont is kind of buttoned up, which makes me wonder how Robin would have fit into this environment. The kinds of students who were going to Claremont, certainly in that era, were young men who were expected to kind of pursue traditional white-collar careers. And Robin himself, he, he didn't quite know what he wanted to be or why he was going there, but he kind of imagined maybe he would end up as a, a diplomat or something like that. And certainly there that was done to please his father or to fulfill uh, a desire that his father had and that he would get bankrolled, uh, at least in terms of his tuition, while he went there. But it became pretty clear very quickly that that was not necessarily where Robin's future resided. Robin took a theater class at Scripps, and by the first session, he was hooked. He and 18 classmates formed an improv group called Karma Pie, and they met twice a week to perform these free shows. And he became quite notorious on campus for his motormouth charm, which helped him get more than just friends. Even though he does come from a family that has money, he is often, you know, broke and penniless or just has nothing in his pockets and is uh, constantly uh, scrounging and borrowing from other people and, and living off of uh, their good uh, their good kindness. And some of it is the sort of bohemian spirit of that era and the, the trust that people had that they could just get by on each other and the kinds of people that Robin happened to surround himself with. I think it also comes from his own principle of wanting to be independent from his parents and certainly from his father, not feeling like he had to depend on them or on their money. And if that left him flat broke at times, then then so be it. But at least he felt like he had the uh, the dignity or the independence that he wasn't borrowing from them. Between Karma Pie and theater, Robin began failing his other classes. For his final macro econ paper, he simply wrote, I really don't know, sir. And finally, Rob had had enough and withdrew Robin from Claremont. When he heard about his son's plans to pursue acting, he had one piece of advice for Robin. My father, up there, the man who uh, 
When I said I wanted to be an actor, he said, wonderful, just have a backup profession like welding. <laughs> Robin actually attended a few welding courses at a trade school, but that didn't go far. So he ends up enrolling in the College of Marin. And this was a public community college, which I think is great. But did Robin at all feel like this was a step down? I think that... I think that the College of Marin was chosen for obvious reasons, that Robin could continue to pursue his academics, but also because it had a very strong theater program, particularly for a kind of community college. It was a two-year program that Robin spent three years in, and not because he was a bad student, but because he was really into the theater and really excelled at it. You can read early reviews of Robin that are written by the local newspapers in Marin County that are giving him great notices and praising him for the talent that he was already exhibiting. Robin was taught by James Dunn, a San Rafael native and a Marine Corps veteran who served as a drill instructor in the Korean War. And Dave, there's a theme that you point out that's very telling about Robin's relationship with authority and with his father. Yeah. Robin, as much as he kind of uh, recoiled at, you know, order and structure he also responded to that. He thrived in those kinds of structured environments. He knew how to work within them and also how to get around them and how, you know, how to go outside the boundaries and then you know, give you a wink and a smile and you could almost forgive him for it. Within the confines of Dunn's program, Robin really pushed his craft, and sometimes that came at the detriment of his peers. The more I learned about Robin, the more I've seen this theme of him just stealing the stage. It makes me wonder if Robin knew that he was doing this at all. It's hard to know. I don't know how much Robin himself was aware of this. Robin seemed to like kind of training the spotlight on himself a little bit or just breaking the rules of their improv games and exercises, which were supposed to be a little bit more shared and a little bit more communal, where he would just kind of go off on his own tangents. And and maybe that had less to do with uh, ego or wanting attention than... He was just somebody who, even even in a kind of free environment, a free setting like that, would not allow himself to be constrained by any kind of order, that whatever the rules were, he always had to push those boundaries a little bit further. Pretty soon, though, Robin's talent outgrew the College of Marin, and Dunn had a second step in mind. He knew John Houseman, the department head of Juilliard's drama school at the time, so he managed to get Robin an audition. My impression was that he was a bit laid-back Californian. That's Elizabeth Smith. She was and still is a voice teacher at Juilliard, and she got to watch Robin's audition. His speech wasn't too good, his diction was a bit sloppy. But, and here's the but, none of that mattered because he was obviously very, very talented, very lively, very intelligent, and full of quirks. You know, he was eccentric, interesting. Robin showed promise. I mean, obviously, we took him without any uh, hesitation. Robin was accepted into Juilliard on a full-ride scholarship, so he was finally able to pursue acting without any financial help from his father. When we get back from the break, Robin sets off for New York City.
Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So it's, it's been just a few years since Robin moved from Detroit out to San Francisco, and now suddenly he's moving from San Francisco to New York. And New York is a, another environment that he has never experienced before. It's extremely urban and moves very quickly, and this is New York in the mid-1970s when things are not going great for the city, so it's a little bit decrepit and gray and still kind of grimy and crime-ridden. And that is also a big shock for for Robin. The, the the speed of it and the kind of franticness is something that he has never experienced before. And then on top of that, Juilliard is uh, particularly in the earliest years of its drama program, which Robin becomes a part of, is a little bit cutthroat and kind of Darwinian in the sense that each year in that era of the school, they would cut a certain number of students as they progressed through the program. So Robin enters this extremely competitive environment, and he becomes a student of Elizabeth Smith, the voice teacher we just heard from. To say he was difficult is is the wrong word, but um, his attention was scattered, you know, it was all over the place. There was one assignment that Elizabeth gave to Robin that he had a really hard time delivering seriously. I used to use a piece by John Milton, the English poet, John Milton, Ode to St. Cecilia's Day, St. Cecilia being the patron saint of music. And it was very formal in structure and very archaic in language. I'll quote a few lines and you'll see what I mean. It starts, blessed pair of sirens, pledges of heaven's joy, sphere-born harmonious sisters, voice and verse, wed your divine song. I mean, it's ridiculous. Oh, he was fabulous for that piece. I mean, he just sent it up rotten. Blessed pair of sirens, pledges of heaven's joy. You know, and I had to say, listen, that's dreadful. (laughs) That's not what we're after at all. And it wasn't just in Elizabeth's class that Robin exhibited this sort of behavior. He made an impression wherever he went. I remember in his maybe second, third year, I can't remember, he played one of the fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream, 
and he ran across the stage with knees bent so that the cloak touched the ground. So it looked as if he had no legs. He was just this little creature running across the stage. Now that was his choice and he did that. You know, now that's invention. Robin's energy was unquestionable, and that drive to perform, it helped him to identify with one student in particular. He and Christopher Reeve connect very early on. Reeve describes meeting Robin on his very first day at Juilliard, and they're kind of drawn to each other because they are so different that even though Robin had come from his kind of wealthy, well-to-do upbringing, Robin had shed a lot of that or the exteriors of that by the time he got to Juilliard. And so he's wearing his Hawaiian shirts and he's a little unbuttoned. He's kind of a hairy guy. He's uh, a little uh, energy-wise hard to contain. Whereas, you know, Reeve comes from New Jersey and he went to prep schools and private schools all the way and almost kind of had the life that Robin would have had if he had just stayed in Detroit. And so all these kinds of uh, opposites and contrasts are kind of uh, throwing them together. But each of them is also a very uh, talented actor and very serious about pursuing it as a career and really interested in the mechanics of acting. And also all these things are things that they bond over, again, very early in their uh, studies there. Even as Robin developed this deep friendship, though, he still struggled to feel at home. Robin didn't have the money to fly back to California and didn't want to hit his parents up for a ticket or for money from them. So he just stays behind and is by himself and really feeling the loneliness and the solitude of that and especially missing uh, Chris during that time. And Robin talked about essentially going up on the roof of a building and just kind of crying and sobbing and letting out this kind of, uh, you know, Whitman-esque uh, barbaric yawp. And that in some ways lets out the, the tension, but it again is also kind of indicative of somebody who spends a lot of time by himself and isn't always happy to have to do so. After that episode, Robin got used to his new school, and he even began playing around with acting outside of Juilliard. My roommate and I are strolling along Broadway. That's Todd Oppenheimer. He's a journalist and a former actor who came across Robin long before he became a household name. And some guy comes strolling toward us in um, white painter's overalls with a Dutch boy cap. Now, this is 1972. People didn't dress that way in New York. And this guy comes up to my roommate, Jack, and they're old friends from California, from, from school, and had been in theater together. And they're starting to talk, and he's got this deep stentorian voice, this, this incredible voice. And then he turns to me and he says, I saw you doing mime in the park the other day. It was great seeing somebody doing that again. I really appreciate that. And I thought, oh, well, do you do mime? And he said, no, no, but I've, you know, messed around with things like that. And, and um, I said, well, would you be interested? He said, well, maybe. We talked for a few more minutes. He left. And I turned to my room and I said, does he, does he know what he's doing? And Jack said, you know, I've never seen him do mime, but he's an incredibly talented physical actor. So I think if he was interested, he would be quite good at it. Robin and Todd mimed together through the crisp falls and promising springtimes of New York City for two years. 
Aside from just a handful of set routines, we just improvised. And Robin used to, <laughs> I remember he would do anything. And uh, I remember once somebody, you know, it was a beautiful, sunny spring day. And some guy was driving down Fifth Avenue in a beautiful convertible with his girlfriend. Robin just jumped in the back seat. While Robin's jumping mind made him an excellent performer, it didn't always translate to daily life. There's no controlling Robin, and I knew that. Um, I mean, we loved him, and it was more like you tolerated him. I mean, I can remember being at parties with him when he would alienate people, other actors who were at the party, because it was, it was the Robin show. We all just thought, how is he going to shoehorn this personality of his into, into the business? I mean, Jonathan Winter was maybe the one closest to the way he was before Robin hit the scene, and not coincidentally, they were friends, and... And I think uh, Robin saw Jonathan as a bit of a mentor. Jonathan has just taught me about the world is open for play. I mean, he's that anything and everybody is mockable <laughs> in a wonderful way. That crazy, manic, improvised way that he performed, that people saw and got to know as Robin's act, you know, where he'd just fly off into anything or adopt a new character to say something, you know, just that nutty, nutty, free associative stuff that he would do. And action. So I said to him, I said, forget no, it. No, 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 would you mind please pointing to the camera? Excuse me, I... Uh, I yes, may I help you? Robin, just do the line so we, we, we can get out. Okay? I can't hard everything. For me, this place is fabulous. That's, that was Robin. That's not an act. That is the way he talked and thought, you know, 75% of the time. That's why he was so good at it. Robin's been at Juilliard for about three years at this point, and he's becoming more and more disenchanted with the whole program. But even more so, it looks like he's developing this pattern of being really intensely interested in something and then kind of dropping it and being ready to move on to the next thing. Well, I think... His departure from Juilliard was a, a confluence of, of factors. Certainly, uh, his starting to grow weary from the rigors and the structure and routine of it, the fact that Chris Reeve had since left the school because he'd gotten a role on a soap opera, so his best friend is no longer there. And Robin had a girlfriend at the time who was living back in San Francisco, and he missed her a great deal and wanted to be with her. And Juilliard makes another round of cuts, as it does every year, and he's one of the people who ends up on the the chopping block. But Dave, this is yet another school program that he hasn't fully completed, and and this is Juilliard we're talking about. Is there any indication that Robin left with his tail between his legs? I don't think that it really got under his skin too much. I don't think he had any real regret or disappointment about leaving Juilliard. It was still such a new program, even though the school itself was fairly prestigious. The acting department of it, while while it was known, it wasn't as if he was sort of throwing away his, his one and only shot. I think, if anything, he expected to go back to San Francisco and find success and a certain amount of fortune fairly easily and it didn't quite break down that way, although he did eventually find his trajectory and his calling. In 
That's all for this episode of Knowing Robin Williams. When we come back, Robin bursts onto the San Francisco comedy scene and finally gets his big break. Thanks to Dave Itzkoff. Check out his book, Robin, to learn even more. And if you like what you just heard, please be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If Robin had an impact on your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email at knowing at macmillan.com. I'm Christy Westgard, your host and producer. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.